Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? A polar bear perched on melting ice has long been one of the unofficial mascots of climate change. But for doctors, now is a moment to focus on another potentially deadly image and do something about it to protect all of us. People aren't likely to change what they do next Tuesday based on worrying about the polar bears. However, totally different when you're talking about, yes, heat deaths, wildfire smoke. That is a level of uh, essential mama bear, papa bear threat response that we actually need to be feeling. It was certainly felt by many just months ago during the summer's so-called heat dome. The highest temperatures we can get with the highest sun angle right now, and the, the hot air is just racing from the interior towards the coast, compressing and heating as it does so. So we have all of these factors line up to create a, a perfect storm, so to speak. And yes, climate change is absolutely the culprit. Now the United Nations climate talks in Glasgow have brought the challenges around heat and health right to the doorstep of negotiators, politicians, and policymakers. This is the first COP26 when there's been a health pavilion in this meeting. I was at the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, so that's nearly 30 years ago. Um, and this is the 26th COP, and it's the first one where we've had health properly represented. With countries promising action, commitments, and solutions, this week climate change as a health crisis and the prescription for a better future. The furnace may be turned on, the sweaters and cozy socks guarding against the chill. But it wasn't long ago when many sweated and suffered through unprecedented heat. A giant dome of hot, hot air settled over the west coast and the interior of B.C. Temperatures climbed far higher than normal. It was fatal for some. I don't think we ever expected to see a mass casualty event like this in British Columbia. That's Sarah Henderson. She's the Scientific Director of Environmental Health at the BC Centre for Disease Control. Her team estimates the heat claimed the lives of around 740 people. That's a couple hundred more than the coroner's office recently confirmed, though heat deaths are still under investigation. And no matter how you count them, hundreds of people lost their lives. Henderson herself felt the searing temperature every time she stepped outside. The thing that surprised me most was the intensity of the heat. I live in the Fraser Valley where the heat was extremely intense and I spent some time in the cooling shelter at the library in my community and walking out of that library into the heat at 5 p.m. in the evening when the library closed was like walking into a blast furnace. But here's the thing. It's important to remember during future hot weather events, the people do not die because it is hot outdoors. They die because it is hot indoors. The vast majority of people who died died inside their sweltering homes. Old age, mental illness and substance use made some more vulnerable. So did being alone. We anticipate that we will find that many of the people who died were quite 
socially isolated, especially because this event hit after 18 months of a pandemic. With the pandemic cloistering people inside and climate change raging outside, Henderson says more can be done to help people prepare for a heat wave the next time it happens. Simple fixes, like installing thermometers inside, to broader changes about what temperatures are deemed dangerous. She'd also like to see more effort made to help those who are most vulnerable. We saw a very high risk due to schizophrenia. How do we engage the organizations that work with people who have schizophrenia? We saw a very high risk due to substance use disorder. How do we engage organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous into this conversation? Henderson says that conversation starts with recognizing heat as a hazard. Heat waves cause mass casualties in Canada, and we need to take them as seriously as we take other weather threats. I hope that this event in 2021 changes the conversation in Canada about extreme hot weather. As Sarah Henderson pushes for a better understanding of heat and the risks it poses, another researcher says the underlying cause of extreme heat, the climate crisis, needs to be recognized as a public health crisis. Hello, my name's Shirley Harper, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Alberta, and I'm also a Canada Research Chair in Climate Change and Health. And Shirley Harper traveled to the UN Climate Talks to make that case. She's the lead author on a new report looking at how tackling climate change can also improve health and health equity in the Americas. And she was in Glasgow to present it. Yeah, and this was a case of converging crises, right? Because we had this huge heat wave that, that swept over the nation, um, but also we were dealing with COVID at the same time. So usual public health measures like opening cooling stations, passing out water, encouraging people to contact their neighbours, that was a lot more challenging in this situation because you also had to cope with infection control and making sure people were distancing and making sure that people were checking in on their neighbours safely. You know, COVID is here and, and hopefully it will be over soon, but the climate crisis will not be over and we're going to continue to experience these extreme heat events going into the future. And, and there's been recent studies actually that have shown um, that if we don't limit warming to 1.5 degrees, that we can expect extreme heat waves like that at least every five years. And of course in Vancouver, emergency health services were overrun. They weren't capable of dealing with it either. This, this past summer was incredibly hard for the public health response in, in terms of the heat wave. And I think that this is a sign of what's to come for climate change. Um, we know that we're going to expect these types of, of heat waves. We know that climate change has already increased the intensity, magnitude, and frequency of heat wave events. But what we experienced last summer just shows the extent to which the intensity of the heat waves could increase. And it showed that we're not ready. And we're not ready for a number of different reasons. From a research perspective and a science perspective, we're not entirely sure which methods are most effective at um, reducing morbidity and mortality in heat wave situations. So for example, um, early warning systems have long been thought to be a very important part of reducing morbidity and mortality during heat wave events. But there's been research coming out of the United States showing that early warning systems don't necessarily decrease mortality during heat waves. So an important part of, of research and, and science in the context of climate change is trying to understand what um, adaptation measures are actually most effective and where public health resources should be invested um, during these heat waves. And you just anticipate 
anticipated my next question. <laughs> what, what are those adaptations that, that are successful? One of the most important things we can do is, is communication. And that includes reaching out to the public and letting them know the heat waves coming, letting them know things that they can do to cool down, um, you know, accessing water, drinking lots of cold water, having fans in your house, um, you know, putting ice packs on your neck and putting your feet in cold water. These are all things that we can do if we don't have access to air conditioning to cool ourselves down. Checking in on neighbors, that's really important. But the other really critical thing to do in the context of climate change is that whenever we talk about heat wave events, we talk about climate change. Because we know that about 40% of the heat wave-related mortality is due to climate change. So we can no longer just talk about heat waves that we're experiencing without talking about how climate change is playing a role in this and how we're expecting it to um, get worse in the future. Why that? Why does that make a difference? Talking about it is absolutely critical. Um, talking to your neighbors about what you're experiencing, talking to your friends about what you're experiencing is, is really important, and talking about it in the context of climate change. So, for example, what does it mean for you? What does it mean when you can't go outside because there's a heat wave? What does it mean for you if you have a child who has asthma and you're worried about their conditioning getting worse during heat waves? What does it mean for me when I can't take my dogs out for a walk around the block? What does it mean for my pets? What does it mean for my children? What does it mean for my family? Talking about these things is really important because it helps people think through how climate change is impacting them and it's impacting their family. And research has shown that if you do that, people are more likely to take action on climate change. Action such as in pressuring government to do something more? I think that engaging with our government is absolutely critical in the response to climate change. And I think that you know, that during the federal election, climate change was one of the top election issues. And we need to keep that pressure on and keep talking to our politicians about that and the importance of it. So it's not just an election issue, it's an everyday issue. Okay, let's keep talking about government then. You've talked about what people should do, um, talk about climate change. What is it that government, each level of government, what, what should they be doing before next summer? There's so many things that each level of government um, can be doing. Um, At a grand scale, we need to limit our warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. If we don't do that, um, the extent to which heat waves are going to continue impacting us and increasing morbidity and mortality is going to completely overrun the health system. At the federal level, I think that there's lots of opportunities to provide support um, for particularly affected areas. So, for example, in this past heat wave, um, providing support for the West Coast was really important. One thing that I think has become very clear in the context of COVID is the importance of research and data and evidence-based decision-making. And I think that we need to take those lessons learned from COVID and continue to apply them in the context of health and climate change. So one thing that every level of government can do is, is participate in research because we don't know which heat wave related adaptation strategies are most effective at reducing morbidity and mortality and we need to know more. We know, you know, what's effective in the short term and what has been effective in in the past, but we don't know how well those will stand up in the context of climate change when we see heat waves like we did last summer. Is that that why this is a, a good time to be addressing climate change and health because we're also talking about COVID recovery? This is such a critical time to be talking about climate change and health and COVID recovery at at the same time. When you think about the healthcare system and how it's been impacted by COVID, and you think about this past, even just this past summer around the world, in Canada, we had these extreme heat waves followed by the devastating wildfires. We had huge flooding in Germany. We had, you know, disasters and climate hazards happening all around the world. And what's become really clear is that after COVID is over, we're going to continue experiencing these climate-related events 
and public health is going to have to continue to respond to them. And so, you know, here at COP26 and, you know, we've been talking about COVID recovery, not just terms in terms of building back better, but building back greener and building back fairer. Because if we want to really recover from COVID, um, we need to also do that in the context of climate change. And are you hoping that your report pushes governments or prompts them to actually take action? We are so excited about our report. Um, the report focuses on climate change and health impacts throughout the Americas, so North America, Central America, and South America. And the report report is really unique in that it's produced independently, um, independent of, of governments, independent of other any vested interests. Um, it's, it's produced by top scholars from across the Americas. And it focuses in not only on what we know about how climate change has impacted health, but what um, strategies are available to cope with the climate change impacts on health. And whereas some reports um, can't comment or, or make specific recommendations to government, in this report we absolutely go there. We make recommendations on what different levels of government can do. We make recommendations on, on what we know in terms of, um, of evidence to support different actions to hopefully help um, foster discussions and help inform decision-making um, in, in the most robust way to protect uh, human health against climate change. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dr. Courtney Howard. I'm an emergency physician in Yellowknife, and I'm here as a board member of the Global Climate and Health Alliance and part of the WHO Working Group on Climate Change and Health. The doctor is in, as in Glasgow, lobbying politicians and policymakers to pay attention to just what the climate is doing to our health. Much like Cheryl Harper, Courtney Howard knows what she's seeing, and she saw it in BC's Okanagan region this summer. The town where I was staying didn't even have air quality information available for two weeks, you know. We know that smoke increases asthma, it increases chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and it is increasingly being felt to increase overall mortality. So every every general practitioner needs to know which of their patient populations are vulnerable, needs to make sure that their uh, asthma medications are refilled ahead of time, needs to know where the clean air shelter is in their communities, needs to know what the evacuation routes are. None of that am I seeing rolled out at the scale that needs to happen. And to me, that moves beyond uh, neglecting this issue on an advocacy front. And it, it, it starts to land in a place where we're simply not fulfilling our clinical duty to society and our, to our patients. Howard is no rookie when it comes to considering the crucial link between health and a warming planet. She's been urging Canada to tackle the challenges for a long time. It was 2009 when The Lancet, one of the world's most prestigious medical journals, said that climate change is the biggest health threat of the 21st century. To this day, a very small proportion of universities in Canada and around the world are even teaching new doctors about the threats of climate change and what to do about it. So if we're not briefing people, they're not going to be bringing that topic up at all the tables they sit at. They're not going to be thinking through it in their heads. So to me, it was absolutely no surprise that we were un underprepared for the heat dome. 
Howard not only wants to see governments go after the big emitters like fossil fuel companies, she also wants to see the medical profession clean and green as well, from building better hospitals to prescribing medicines that do less harm to the environment. So how about we change the way we live, clean up our skies, save some lives right now, and decrease the amount of money that we're spending in our healthcare systems. So this is a moment of transition. You know, we've lived a very difficult couple of years, and I think the best thing we could do now is to just continue the path of change we're already on and get ourselves to a low-carbon place that will actually be the thing we need to keep us safe and healthy. And in Glasgow, here she is in action, publicly challenging Canada's Minister of Climate Change, Stephen Gilbo, to sign on to a global pledge to develop a national net zero healthcare system. Um, and I was talking to the leader of this initiative last night, and he said that 40 countries have now signed on and Canada is teetering on the brink. So I would just like to very much encourage you. Uh, we know that... Uh, Days later, the signatories to the deal were unveiled. Canada wasn't on the list. Within hours, though, Howard got what she wanted. Gilbo announced Canada is in. Now, the solution to curbing the many health crises of climate change is limiting the amount the world continues to warm. But getting to that goal of 1.5 degrees takes a lot of action. And while Canada may have fallen in line with the pledge to get health care to net zero, the country leading the charge is the United Kingdom. Nick Watts is the Chief Sustainability Officer with the National Health Service in England, and we reached him in Glasgow. Hi, hello. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that title, Chief Sustainability Officer, that sounds pretty bureaucratic. What is it that you do? (laughs) Bureaucratic? Come on. (laughs) It's a new job. It was created 12 months ago. Um, The NHS is one of the largest employers in the world. 1.4 million staff. We provide healthcare across the entire country. We do so in a way that makes everyone incredibly proud. But we are also part of the problem that we're here to talk about today, climate change. My job is to make sure that the NHS responds to climate change, that we adapt to the health impacts of climate change, that we reduce the emissions that come from healthcare itself. Okay, we'll get into the details of that in a moment, but I'm just curious to know why you took this on, because you're trained as a medical doctor, you were involved in public health. Why this role for you? It can't be said enough. The climate crisis is a health crisis. Climate change threatens to undermine all of the things that we depend on for good health, for good healthcare. Hospitals, healthcare systems, they weren't designed with a shifting environment in mind. And so to that extent, it's the responsibility of the health profession to respond. And since you started in the role, how much movement have you actually seen towards slashing emissions in the healthcare system in the UK? Over the last 10 years, the NHS has reduced its emissions by roughly 30%, well ahead of the UK economy. We're really proud of that. What we're even more proud of is 12 months ago when I started, we said something bold. We said we were going to be the world's first healthcare system to get to net zero emissions. Net zero for the emissions we control directly by 2040, net zero for our entire global carbon footprint by 2045. Um, It's been 12 months since we made that commitment. It's been 12 months since I had the privilege of joining the NHS and we're a little bit proud to be able to say that we were targeting an emissions reduction of 1,260 kilotons of carbon. We hit that just the other week. Those numbers, 1,260-something of carbon, very roughly the equivalent of 1.7 million flights from London to New York or powering 1.1 million homes 
for an entire year up here uh, in Scotland in, in the north of the United Kingdom. How did you do it? Give me some idea of what, what you changed. Carbon is absolutely everywhere, right? Uh, the response to climate change and a comprehensive net zero response has to look absolutely everywhere. Let's take our buildings. Let's take our hospitals and our clinics as our first example. We're investing in updating and improving in taking our existing estate, our existing hospitals, and turning them into climate smart hospitals, investing in insulation, investing in solar panels across their roofs. We have coming out just in a couple of weeks, a new national net zero hospital standard. Why would you be building hospitals that aren't fit for the future? And so we're going to start to raise the bar there as well. That's talking about the buildings themselves, right? Um, and that's an engineering problem. Um, but we also then have to think about the care that we deliver, how we deliver that care. And that involves starting to think about how patients move around the system, um, how we are able to provide care that is remote, that is digital first, digitally enabled care. It improves access if you give a, if you give patients a choice, they love it. It also happens to reduce emissions. And so we've done a lot of that. Um, you can imagine we've done a lot of that over the course of the pandemic. Some of that is going to stay, but you see emissions reduction there. You see emissions reductions in changes in the way that we prescribe our medicines. There are some great examples of primary care physicians shifting away uh, from some of the most harmful asthma inhalers that they prescribe and anesthetists taking a look at the kinds of anesthetic gases they can prescribe and shifting away from, for example, desflurane. It's a anesthetic gas that you might never have heard of. But if I told you every single vial of it, every single bottle of it that is used in a surgery is the equivalent of burning 354 kilograms of coal, that would alarm you. What is even more alarming is when we say, actually, there's a really great alternative that in many cases can be better for patients going through that surgery. And so our anesthetists have taken this issue up with great gusto and are reducing their emissions. It's all those little things scattered across a system of 1.4 million healthcare professionals that has got us to the target. You, you mentioned how proud uh, the people who work in the NHS are. And I know because I lived in the United Kingdom for about a decade that the NHS is beloved by people in the United Kingdom. But I'm wondering if you have a sense of how people view the idea of putting a lot of money into decarbonizing healthcare when healthcare itself seems chronically underfunded. I would almost see these things as um, as working in perfect synergy, right? The, the money that is coming into the NHS, it's coming from some of the commitments that we are seeing here in Glasgow at the UN Climate Change Summit. It is coming from the energy department. It's coming from other parts of government flowing into the healthcare system. Yes, to help decarbonize it. But again, if we go and look at what we're actually talking about, we're talking about more efficient buildings. We're talking about better care for patients. We're talking about relieving pressure from, you're right, a strained healthcare system. I have just out the window, I can see the very, very world's first zero emission ambulance. There wasn't one before. Uh, the NHS came along and we now have two. There's actually one carrying patients currently, electric ambulance, 100% electric in Birmingham. And there's one I can see just out the window. It's an electric ambulance with a hydrogen range extender. The reason I'm talking about that and the link to public health is that we know that these sorts of innovations, they reduce air pollution the investments that we are making to net zero to decarbonize the NHS, they're just good healthcare policy. And just to be clear for listeners that the ambulance is there not because anybody is ill, but because it is on display <laughs> at, the, at the UN exactly Summit Talks. Right. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, this net zero hospital standard. How will the NHS be held accountable for actually doing what it, it says it's going to do? We want to be held account by making our numbers public. 
We want to be held account every year. We will be back. We will be very transparent about the kinds of progress we've made. We'll be transparent when we don't quite make the progress we want to make because we know that that will mean that we will have a healthcare profession that will shout louder at us saying we need to go faster. Um, to be clear, and for the sake of transparency and a bit of accountability, we don't have all of the answers to everything that we want to do, but we know that we have a long way to go to get there. 2040 for the emissions we control directly, 2045 for our full supply chain. All right, I'm going to give you a chance to write a prescription <laughs> because Canada just signed on to this World Health Organization's uh, commitment to decarbonize healthcare systems. It signed on well after the main signatories signed on. Healthcare here, though, is provincial. It's not national. So I'm wondering what prescription would you give to Canada when it comes to this? So healthcare is provincial, not national. Um, that shouldn't stop anyone. There is absolutely no reason why Canada couldn't decarbonize its entire healthcare system. It has led the world in so many impressive parts of healthcare innovation, healthcare improvement. Why not sustainability? If I was going to give a bit of advice, maybe two things. Number one, go do something doesn't matter what. One of the things that we talk about all the time in the NHS is every single individual is responsible for one piece of carbon. There's something that an anesthetist, a cardiologist, an outpatient occupational therapist is personally responsible for. They can have agency over that and they can do something tomorrow morning. Number two, there's a lot we can learn from each other. A lot of the best innovations the NHS has when it comes to decarbonizing healthcare, we've stolen from others. Have you stolen anything from Canada? <laughs> Um, we have all sorts of really positive uh, conversations with a few anaesthetists over in Canada. Um, we have some really positive conversations with um, a couple of really passionate surgeons who are doing some really innovative things, um, looking at reducing single-use plastic, looking at reducing the emissions from the operating theatre. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> all right, Nicholas Watts, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you very much. Thanks for covering this. It's such an important issue. Thousands of kilometers away, we reach Omnea El Amrani. She traveled to Glasgow for the talks, but she's back in Cairo and she steps out between surgeries to talk in the hallways of Ain Shams University Hospital. Yes, I'm literally outside the operating room. She's in her first year of residency now. She says there was no mention of climate change when she was in medical school. But in Egypt, the impacts were clear from sea level rise threatening coastal cities and also in Cairo. The first and the most prominent is air pollution. And at the same time, I've also noticed the increasing temperature and how it has led to heat stress, especially the temperatures keep increasing uh, during the summer where we reach around uh, 40 to 50 degrees. And that was not the case when I was younger. Still, seeing people suffer from air pollution and increases in heat caused by burning fossil fuels hasn't moved leaders at Climate Talks to action. But this year, there was a symbol of progress, a prominent health pavilion standing alongside others from nations like Saudi Arabia. This year is the first time to see such a strong health presence because of the pavilion. A big deal for Omnia. Uh, yes, in terms of seeing the health a pavilion for the first time, um, it's literally a, a dream come true because since I started working and attending climate change conferences, we're always fighting for health to be even a part of a conversation. 
In a year from now, politicians, activists, and medical students like her will gather in Egypt for the 27th conference. She's 25 years old and is one of many people fighting for health to become even more prominent to keep her generation and future generations safe. It makes the most sense for health to be considered, for health benefits to be calculated, and for it to be mentioned as well as addressed, uh, similar to the points of agriculture, transport, energy, and so on. She wants the next meeting in the coastal resort town of Sharm el-Sheikh to include an official day dedicated to health. We do have one more story we plan to bring you soon from our trip to Scotland, a visit to the city of Aberdeen. It's a hub for Scotland's oil and gas industry that began more than half a century ago with offshore rigs in the North Sea. But now some want to see a switch from fossil fuels to renewable wind energy to save the city. It's a familiar story for some Canadians and one that's rife with tension and growing pains. We'll hear what it's like to face the dangers offshore, how a former oil executive hopes to make environmental amends, and why one community's beloved green space could be paved over by the clean energy transition. That's coming up. Thanks, as always, to the What on Earth team, associate producers Serena Renner and Rachel Sanders, producer Molly Siegel, engineer Matthias Wolfson, Manisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.